Hello, everyone, and welcome to Further Up and Further In a podcast. This is episode five of the podcast, discussing chapter four of The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, titled Turkish Delight. And this chapter picks up where Lewis left off at the end of the last chapter, where Edmund had now stumbled through the wardrobe into Narnia, and in many ways has parallel accounts with Lucy's entrance, where Lucy enters, uh, guided by the light of the lamppost, and meets Tumnus, and is welcomed back into his home with cordiality and hospitality. She drinks tea with Tumnus and hears of the great romps and revels of Narnia that occurred prior to the witch's curse. Here, uh, Edmund stumbles in, and rather than meeting a friend, he meets a foe. He meets the white witch herself, and rather than being invited into a home to be warmed by tea, he is invited into a sledge to be warmed by a false treat, this false warmth that the drink and the Turkish delight the witch conjures offers him. And so his encounter will reveal the condition of his heart, just as much as Lucy's revealed the condition of hers, that she is met with wonder and beauty and sublimity and power of enchantment and possibilities. Uh, Edmund is met with power of a completely different kind, the power of domination and of sterility and of darkness and of evil. This false sense of power that the White Witch holds. We talked last week about the gold wand that she uses not to rule as a scepter with justice and with love for her subjects, but with the power to destroy, the power to transform life into stone. And so Edmund's encounter is of an, an entirely different kind than Lucy's. But he meets the White Witch at the end of chapter three, the beginning of chapter four, Turkish Delight, we get the occasion of their conversation in which uh, he will be enticed and tempted to betray uh, his sisters and his brother, just as much as Tumnus was tempted to betray Lucy. And whereas Tumnus chose eventually the virtuous thing uh, to uh, align his allegiances to Lucy and not to the White Witch to uh, effect her escape out of Narnia by guiding her back to the wardrobe safely. Um, and even though we know that uh, in the chapters to come, that will be to his, un his own undoing, uh, Edmund is about to, in this chapter, mention that Lucy had encountered a fawn, which will be the death note for Tumnus by telling the White Witch that. But Edmund here aligns his allegiances with the White Witch, with the power of darkness, and, and in so doing betrays his own family in the chapters to come. He'll uh, lead them back into the wardrobe. He'll lead them to the White Witch's place. And uh, when they meet the beavers, Edmund will go alone to report back to her which we'll see in the chapters to come. In this chapter, though, we get the, the great title of Turkish Delight. I have in front of me on my desk my very own Turkish Delight that I purchased at a grocery store. But uh, being a good Narnian, I dare not eat it. <laughs> uh, so it is just going to sit idly by as we record this episode. But the encounter of the Turkish Delight with Edmund is one of those that becomes such a memorable moment dealing with the problem of temptation and the problem of enticement and uh, the, the, the very things that we tend to become hooked by and ensnared by because they present a false promise of satisfaction. 
which is what we are all desperately uh, vying for, is to be satisfied, to be pleased, to experience fullness of joy. That's what we are designed to experience. And Lewis knew this better than anybody, that we were designed to be pleased, that our desires are not too strong for heaven, but they are too weak, Lewis says. Uh, In The Weight of Glory, he talks about how we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and with sex when infinite joy is offered us. He says we're like a child who's content making, uh, making piles in a mud pit when he doesn't realize the promise of a holiday at sea. Uh, that we are far too easily pleased. We are far too content with what some theologians have called lovers less wild than Christ. That we are contented with the false allures and the false promises of sin when infinite joy is offered in God. Uh, in Paralandra, the second, of, the second book of Lewis's space trilogy, he has a phrase for this where he calls it the sweet poison of the false infinite the sweet poison of the false infinite. And in Paralandra, Lewis is talking about Ransom's experience with the sweet fruit and the sweet pleasures that he experiences on that other world. Uh, In Narnia, that is very much what Turkish delight comes to symbolize. For Edmund, this is the sweet poison of the false infinite. And as we'll see as we study this chapter, it becomes his own damnation, that he becomes hooked by this allure where it becomes an ever-growing craving for a quickly fading feel. Uh, If anybody has ever fished before, then you know that the bait always hides the hook. That's the purpose of bait, is to hide the sharp hook within. It's to hide the poison. And for Edmund, he's about to come face-to-face with this great trial. And it parallels the trial that uh, the White Witch had uh, encountered with Diggory. Uh, as Queen Jadis in The Magician's Nephew, all those years ago when Narnia was first created and Diggory Kirk uh, is sent in that novel by Aslan to go retrieve the silver apple from the garden high on the hill. And Jadis is there and her chin is stained dark with the juice of the silver apple that she had eaten for herself. And she tempts Diggory to partake of that apple for himself, the apple of youth, which Aslan had told him to take and return back to Aslan, not to eat it. And Diggory is suffering this moral crisis there, much like uh, Satan and Eve in the garden. This moral dilemma of trusting and obeying what we were designed to do. And uh, what our design was to enjoy the pleasures of creation as a means of enjoying the creator. Paul talks in Romans 1 about the perils of loving creation over the creator. And Diggory is tempted by Jadis and the magician's nephew to eat the silver apple for himself or at the very least to take it home and and heal his sick mother with it. If you won't disobey Aslan for yourself, do it out of a good motivation for another. And Diggory succeeds from that temptation. He does not eat of the silver apple. He does not take it home to his mother. He returns it to Aslan. And we'll see that encounter more thoroughly when we get to the magician's nephew here in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, Edmund is faced with a similar difficulty where the, the enticements of the flesh become so overpowering that they seem impossible to avoid. And the prospect of eating Turkish delight and that hook that the White Witch uses to gain his loyalties is such a human conflict and such a human dilemma.
So in chapter four, Turkish Delight, uh, we pick up where we left off with the conversation between Edmund and the White Witch. She asks him, just like Tumnus asked Lucy, what he is, the opening statement from the chapter. But what are you? said the queen again. Are you a great overgrown dwarf that has cut off its beard? No, your majesty, said Edmund. I never had a beard. I'm a boy. And we remember Lucy telling Tumnus that she was a girl. This declaration of our identity, we are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve, which is what the white witch says. A boy, do you mean you are a son of Adam? It's the exact same encounter with Tumnus and Lucy, but with diametrically opposite uh, effects. What Tumnus ultimately discovers as a kinship and as a friendship with Lucy, the White Witch will exploit for her own power, and she will bait him to get him on her side in order to do so. She asks if he's human, and he says he is, and and we know that she wants to thwart this prophecy. When she discovers that not only is he human, but he has three human siblings, the rest of the chapter, she is completely fixated on the reality that there are four humans potentially coming into what she thinks is her domain. And out of her uh, quest for absolute power, out of her quest for absolute control, she will do everything she must. She will lie, she will tempt, she will ensnare, and she will even go to the lengths of killing Aslan in order to get her way. And we see the seeds of that in this chapter. Edmund says, I opened a door and just found myself here, your majesty which is the exact same phrase used for Lucy, that she found herself in Narnia. Now Edmund has found himself in Narnia. And of course, more thoroughly than that, he will find who he is, what he is in Narnia. And at this stage in the story, he is a self-centered betrayer. He is a treasonous boy. He's a Judas figure that he will betray his family for a few bites of Turkish delight. The queen says that she uh, heard of this door. She's heard of this channel through which men and women from the human world can enter Narnia, which, of course, we know that to be true from the, the magician's nephew, uh, where Frank, the cabbie, comes in to Narnia, stumbles into Narnia, not through the wardrobe, but through another means, and becomes the first king of Narnia, establishing the line of humans. Um, and, of course, Diggory and Polly are in Narnia and the magician's nephew. So she had heard of this way before. And she wishes to obstruct it with all of her might to keep these kings and queens from coming. But as about a quarter of the way into the chapter, as we move through it, uh, she invites him into her sled. She offers him a magical drink that warms him down to his very toes. And then she offers him Turkish delight. And as I said, there's a statement from Paralandra that Lewis uses uh, where he calls this sort of thing the sweet poison of the false infinite. Uh, If I could recommend a song, there is a band called the Oh Hellos, uh, and you can look up their music on Spotify or YouTube. Uh, But the Oh Hellos are a uh, a folk rock band from Texas uh, that a lot of their music is inspired by C.S. Lewis. And they have a song on their album, uh, the album called Dear Wormwood, which is taken directly from the Screwtape Letters. But they have a song called Bitter Water. And that song... Uh, describes in so many beautiful ways. I would encourage you to go listen to it. Uh, That song describes in so many beautiful ways this allure that humans have in our sinfulness for the sweet poison of the false infinite. This allure we have for bitter water. Uh, One of the refrains they sing is that, I know I shouldn't love you, but I do. And this is the conflict that 
the white witch creates for Edmund by offering him something that cannot satisfy him, and yet it will provoke within him a longing to be satisfied that will never be filled. The queen let another drop fall from her bottle onto the snow, and instantly there appeared a round box tied with green silk ribbon, which, when opened, turned out to contain several pounds of the best Turkish delight. And even the name of this treat has, uh, Devin Brown talks about this in one of his books, Turkish delight has this romantic, exotic uh, aura to it. it is, this is no mere cookie. This is Turkish delight and several pounds of the best of it. But there's a statement here made when Edmund begins to eat it that is quite revealing. And I think Lewis is intentional here in what he's wishing to say about this encounter. Lewis says this, While he was eating, the queen kept asking him questions. At first, Edmund tried to remember that it is rude to speak with one's mouth full, but soon he forgot about this and thought only of trying to shovel down as much Turkish delight as he could. And the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. Note that. The more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And he never asked himself why the queen should be so inquisitive. This is the sleight of hand. This is the smoke and mirrors. Uh, this is a classic function of sin and temptation is to uh, hide the hook with the bait, distract us with that which we think will satisfy, and begin penetrating deep. It begin inquiring, begin uh, destroying from the very core. She begins asking him questions that will reveal a great deal of uh, revealing information about, about the fawn, Tumnus, about Lucy, about his siblings, information that the witch will use to ensnare him for good. And he doesn't notice because he is far too easily pleased, as Lewis says, that the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. And all he could think of was shoveling down as much Turkish delight as possible. Uh, this brings to mind something that Lewis wrote in the Screwtape Letters um, almost a decade before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe with this, this statement of Edmund and that the more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. This is that ever-growing craving for a quickly fading feel that Lewis describes in the Screwtape Letters. In that novel, he's writing from the perspective of the demons. Uh, Screwtape is a senior devil who writes letters to his nephew Wormwood on how to effectively tempt and destroy a human being. And so Screwtape writes, this is again from the perspective of hell, Screwtape writes this when he's describing God, which he calls him the enemy. Screwtape says this, never forget that when we, the demons, are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground, on God's ground. I know we have won many a soul through pleasure. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. He made the pleasures. All our research so far has not enabled us to produce one. All we can do is to encourage the humans to take the pleasures which our enemy has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. Hence, we always try to work away from the natural condition of any pleasure to that in which it is least natural, least redolent of its maker, and least pleasurable. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure is the formula. Note what Screwtape says is the formula. This is the tactic of hell. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the formula. 
because pleasure is God's territory. In Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis says, God likes matter. He invented it. Don't try to be more spiritual than God. God created the world and said it was good. Day one, light and dark, it is good. Day two, the firmament, this is good. Day three, this is good. Day four, this is good. God created man and woman in his image. This is very good. Be fruitful and multiply, he tells man and woman. God created an entire cosmos, an entire universe for us to enjoy, a full garden of yes with one no. Of every tree you may freely eat except for this one tree. It's like what G.K. Chesterton says. He uh, describes in one of his works that he said, the more I examined Christianity, the more I saw it, and the more I came to believe it, the more I discovered that while it established a rule and an order, that Christianity has boundaries, it has rules that we must obey. He said the chief aim of that rule and of that order and of that boundary was to give room for good things to run wild. That's what Christianity's chief aim is, that while it establishes a rule and an order, while there is obedience and submission and acquiescence to the will of the Father, the chief aim was to give room for good things to run wild. That pleasure is God's, and the desire for pleasure is ingrained within us for a reason. The problem is exactly what Lewis says in the Screwtape Letters, that all Satan can do and all the white witch can do is take a pleasure that the enemy has produced, right? That's what Screwtape says. Take a pleasure that God has produced at times or in ways or in degrees which he has forbidden. All they can do is twist and mar and tamper and pervert a pleasure. They cannot produce one. A pleasure that is enjoyed in the right way is an act of worship to God. St. Augustine said it best. He said, love God and do as you please. If your loves are in order, if you love God supremely, if you love doing what is right supremely, then the rest of your loves will fall into the right place. What has happened to Edmund is that his love for Turkish delight has superseded his love for his siblings and his love for, ultimately, God, for Aslan, which he has no real understanding of, no real desire for. His love for the wondrous, his love for truth. Remember, Edmund is a liar. Edmund is a deceiver. We've seen that all the way from chapter one. He's ill-tempered. And with this offer of Turkish delight, the white witch is merely drawing out of him that which is already within him. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That Edmund is certainly finding himself in Narnia. It's the same thing that will happen to Eustace Scrub in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader, that when he is dragoned, when he becomes a dragon as a result of his own greed, he is merely manifesting on the outside that which has always been true on the inside. Lewis says in The Voyage of the Dawn Treader that thinking dragonish thoughts... Eustace became a dragon. And notice that order. Thinking dragonish thoughts, Eustace became a dragon. And this is so essential to the story with Edmund here. The more he ate, the more he wanted to eat. It was a bottomless craving. It was a pursuit that will never be satisfied, a journey that will never find an end. And yet that's how sin operates. And our addictions, our obsessions, our sin override even our most fundamental instinct, that of self-preservation. It's not but one paragraph later that we read this. Probably the queen knew quite well what he was thinking, Edmund, 
For she knew, though Edmund did not, that this was enchanted Turkish delight, and that anyone who had once tasted it would want more and more of it, and would even, if they were allowed, go on eating it until they killed themselves. This is what addiction does. This is what the hook does. This is what the sin of temptation does. It brings the sweet poison of the false infinite. It increases the craving, an ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. And you search and you search and you search and you search and you go on doing it until you would do it to the point of killing yourself, overriding our most basic instinct, that of self-preservation and survival. We will amuse ourselves to death in our sin and in our folly. And notice how this contrasts the revelry that Tumnus described, that of the banqueting table, the feast, the joy, the jolly of, of uh, the jollification of dancing and romping with Aslan in spring. This is the false promise of a sterile queen. She goes on to Edmund. Edmund keeps saying, can't I have more now? Can't I have more now? He's become a much more impetuous, much more impatient child, losing his manners, forgetting to speak respectfully to her. He now becomes in the full grip, victimed by his own sinful desires. Can't I have some more now? And she begins to continue the sweet argument of persuading Edmund to join her side and to betray his siblings by bringing them to her castle. And she tells him, and what's more, I have no children of my own. Remember, I mentioned in a previous chapter, she is sterile. She is stagnant. She is not a queen of fertility and joy and, and fruitfulness. Right? It is not real fruit that she offers Edmund. It is a false treat that will not satisfy. It is sweet to the taste, but not nourishing in the least. She says, I have no children of my own. I want a nice boy whom I could bring up as a prince and who would be king of Narnia when I am gone. While he was prince, he would wear a gold crown and eat Turkish delight all day long. And you are much the cleverest and handsomest young man I've ever met. I think I would like to make you the prince someday when you bring the others to me. Notice how she ends that statement. When you do what I desire so that I can exploit you and use you to gain power, subtly, manipulatively, right at the very end. But along the way, what she does is she uses partial truths in order to tell a lie, right? Uh, it's like in Hamlet, Polonius talks about using a, a bait of falsehood to catch a carp of truth, right? That you use a little bit of falsehood to gain the truth. You, you twist the truth into a kind of half-truth in order to turn it into a lie, but make it sound right. Here, we're getting a partial truth that she says you can be, you will be a king of Narnia, which is true. He's got a throne waiting for him at Caraparavel, just like Lucy does, but he's not going to get there the way the white witch is claiming, right? The promise of pleasure, the promise of joy, the promise of his kingliness is real. Edmund was designed to experience fullness of joy. He was designed to be a king of Narnia, but not through Turkish delight and not through the false reign of a white witch. And so she's using these partial truths. You could be king one day. And you could enjoy forever the feast. But she's using the artificial feast of Turkish delight to ensnare him. And she's using the artificial means of a false power, a tyrannical power, a despotic power, in order to taint that truth into a lie that suits her agenda 
and not Aslan's. She continues later on, you are to be the prince and later on the king, that is understood, but you must have courtiers and nobles. I will make your brother a duke and your sister's duchesses, appealing to Edmund's desire for power. You could be a king, but not a co-king. You could rule over Peter. You could rule over Susan and Lucy. And so she's taking these desires of his that are good, a desire to be what he's meant to be, king of Narnia, but to take it in a way in which God is forbidden, which is exactly what Screwtape said. Take a pleasure and, and pervert it and offer it in a way in which God is forbidden. Offer it prematurely, offer it to a degree that is excessive, offer it in a way that circumvents the will of God, whatever it takes. And so they finish up their conversation. Edmund continues to plead for one more piece of Turkish delight. She leaves, continuing to uh, um, send him on mission uh, with this imperative to return with his siblings. He encounters Lucy in all of her bubbly self. Isn't it wonderful, Edmund? You've got in too. And uh, there are two particular occasions where the narrator uh, mentions how Edmund's face and his appearance has changed. And this is um, such a powerful moment. It says, Lucy was too happy and excited to notice how snappishly Edmund spoke or how flushed and strange his face was. This is the antithesis to what happens to Moses when he's on the mountaintop, that he has been changed forever by experiencing glory. Here, Edmund has been changed, altered, um, much like Jadis' face is stained with black juice after eating the silver apple, Edmund's face is flushed and strange and unfamiliar that he has become ugly uh, because of this sinful allegiance with the White Witch. Uh, Lucy talks about uh, the tum talks about tumness, talks about the White Witch, and Edmund says, "What? There's no White Witch because he believes that she's the queen." Remember, and Lucy says. Um, all of the real talking beasts of Narnia hate her. She's a false queen. She's not a real queen. She can turn people into stone and do all kinds of horrible things. And she has made a magic so that it is always winter in Narnia. Always winter, but it never gets to Christmas. And she drives about on a sledge drawn by reindeer with her wand in her hand and a crown on her head. Lewis says, Edmund was already feeling uncomfortable from having eaten too many sweets. And when he heard that the lady he had made friends with was a dangerous witch, he felt even more uncomfortable. But he still wanted to taste that Turkish delight again more than he wanted anything else. There is a deep spiritual problem at play with the order of Edmund's loves. He has come to love Turkish delight more than he loves anything else. And that has rotted him to the absolute core, which again, this is a reminder of another moment in The Magician's Nephew. Jadis, the white witch, has eaten of the silver apple for herself, tempted Diggory to do so, and he avoids this temptation. He obeys Aslan and brings the silver apple back to him. And Diggory and Polly ask Aslan about the silver apple, knowing that the witch had eaten it and she did not die. And they ask him, uh, Polly says, so we thought, Aslan, that there must be some mistake and she can't really mind the smell of those apples. Aslan says, why do you think that, daughter of Eve? Well, she ate one. And listen to Aslan's response. Child, he replied, that is why all the rest are now a horror to her. 
That is what happens to those who pluck and eat fruits at the wrong time and in the wrong way. The fruit is good, but they loathe it ever after. That the white witch has lost the thing that she idolizes. Polly says, oh, I see. And I suppose because she took it in the wrong way, it won't work for her. I mean, it won't make her always young and all that. Alas, said Aslan, shaking his head, it will. Things always work according to their nature. She has won her heart's desire. She has unwearying strength and endless days like a goddess. But length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery. And already she begins to know it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. Notice Aslan's statement about Jadis eating this silver apple. Things always work according to their nature. She has become strong. She has won her heart's desire. She has endless days like a goddess, but her heart is wicked. And length of days with an evil heart is only length of misery. All get what they want. They do not always like it. It's like what Lewis says in The Great Divorce, that there are two kinds of people, those who say to God, thy will be done, and those to whom God says, thy will be done. And Edmund is beginning to discover that, beginning to discover that he has gotten his heart's desire, but he uh, is miserable as a result of it. All get what they want. They do not always like it. Uh, so thank you for listening to this episode. Uh, we'll come back uh, next week to look at the next chapter uh, to see what happens as Lucy and Edmund come back from the wardrobe. And that will be chapter five, back on this side of the door. So thank you for listening. The podcast you just heard was made using Anchor. Ever thought about making your own podcast? Anchor makes it really easy for anyone to get started. It's a one-stop shop for recording, hosting, and distributing podcasts. Best of all, it's 100% free. Sign up now at anchor.fm slash new. That's anchor.fm slash new to get started.